Um, a pleasure, a great pleasure to welcome Tobias Rosbert from the Humboldt University in Berlin. Uh, Tobias is the author of a book about Kant on the self, as you know, and is going to talk to us about Kant today. In general, he combines this interest with an interest in modern metaphysics, and I think we'll perhaps see some of that at work today. So, finally, Good evening. It's a great pleasure and also an honor for me to speak here. And I'll speak about the most important objection to the most important argument for Kant's transcendental idealism. So transcendental idealism is a view about space and time. It's the view that space and time are forms of intuition and not properties or features of things and themselves. That is to say, the fact that we experience the world as being spatio-temporally extended is not due to the fact that the world in itself is spatio-temporal or has some spatio-temporal structure, but is somehow due to us projecting this temporal structure, spatio-temporal structure into what we perceive. Now Kant's most important argument for this very controversial view is to be found in the transcendental aesthetic. It begins with an argument for the claim that we have what Kant calls an a priori intuition of space and time. Kant gives an argument to the effect that we couldn't have arrived at the representation of space and time by somehow empirically first perceiving spatio-temporal relation and then abstract from them and get some uh, general representation of space. He thinks that we already have to have a representation of space and time in order for us to perceive particular spatial-temporal relations and properties. Um, and he thinks that this represent a priori representation has to be an intuition. From that he then concludes that space and time cannot be features of the mind-independent world of things and themselves, but have to be um, forms of our intuition. So the only way to explain that we can somehow a priori represent the spatial tr um, temporal structure is the assumption that the spatial, trump, uh, spatial temporal structure is somehow situated in our mind and being projected on the world. Now a lot of this argument is very controversial. You might question the assumption that we have an a priori intuition of space and time, and you might also question the assumption assumption that it is in a good explanation of that a priori intuition that space and time are forms of our intuition. But maybe the most obvious objection to the argument is that however good it would be in uh, proving that space and times are space and time are forms of intuition, it simply cannot be sufficient in order to prove that space and time are not also features of the mind independent world. So the objection goes, it could be that space and time are um, forms of intuition, but nevertheless, they are also things in themselves. Spatial-temporal um, relations could also be um, properties or relation among things and themselves. It might be that if Kant is right about what he says about space and time as forms of intuition, then we could never know whether the world is spatial-temporal in itself, because we re would represent it as spatial-temporal um, extended anyway, even if it wasn't. But that isn't an argument showing that the world isn't spatial-temporal in itself. That's a well-known objection 
which in the current literature is discussed under the name of the neglected alternative, which you probably all know. It's also sometimes discussed as the Trendlenburg gap objection, dating it back to a controversy between Adolf Trendlenburg and Kuno Fischer in the 19th century about this issue. In fact, the objection is much older and has arisen immediately after the publication of the first edition of the first critique. And in order to show that, I want to read out a passage by a very <laughs> little-known German author called Ludwig Heinrich von Jakob in a work called Prüfung der Mendelssohnschen Morgenstunden oder aller spekulativen Beweise für das Dasein Gottes. So Jakob is a Kantian, and he wants to defend the Kantian position against Mendelssohn. And in course of doing that, he lets a fictitious interlocutor say the following. I concede that since we have to think everything necessarily in space and time, these representations have to be grounded in the nature of our soul, and that they hence precede all our empirical cognition. However, could not the nature of things nevertheless be such that these predicates pertain to them also in themselves? and that our soul was given this constitution in order to prevent errors in our cognition and to guarantee that our representation corresponds to the things themselves? As you see, that's exactly the neglected alternative objection. Now, Jakob himself is trying to answer that objection, but he's doing a rather bad job in doing so. So the first thing he says about it is that it concerns merely as hypothesis, which somehow misses the strengths of the objection, then he says that no philosopher has doubted that things in themselves are spatial-temporal anyway, um, referring to Leibniz as an example, but Leibniz obviously is not the only philosopher. And then he makes a third remark, which I think is worth thinking about a, bit, a little bit more. He uh, says, which is also on the handout, the sensible world is only a phenomenon for us, and since all our predicates are only valid of phenomena, we cannot find any one of them that was suited for the things themselves. So if this claim was true, then we would indeed have an argument to assume that the uh, world in itself couldn't be spatial-temporal because all spatial-temporal predicates are somehow only suited to be applicable to appearances. The problem is, why should that be the case? So why should spatial-temporal predicates only be suited to be applied to appearances and not to things in themselves. That's the question, and I think that Kant has an answer to that question. I think um, that his theory about the distinction between appearances and things in themselves provides him with an answer to that question. And I, in the second half of my talk, I want to present you this um, uh, Kantian answer to that kind of <laughs> objection. Before I do, do so, however, I want to discuss a different approach to trying to defund, uh, de defend Kant against the neglected alternative objection. Um, a proposal that was made by Markus Wilaschek and then recently by Lucy Alais in a talk given at this society and then in her latest book, Manifest Reality. And I want to show somehow that it's, it's, I think it's a very ingenious idea that the two um, are presenting, but I want to convince you that it's not enough to uh, defend Kant against the objection. So both Wilaschek and Elais um, base their um, defense on Kant's account of intuition. 
Kant defines intuitions as a certain form of representation, namely singular and immediate representations. Intuitions do not represent what they represent due to the fact that they contain a general uh, mark as a content, a general property as a content, and then represent whatever in the world has that property, but they um, represent their objects directly without any somehow uh, general content interfering, and they also represent it singularly. So they represent only what they in fact represent. So that can be, um, and uh, both um, Bilashek and Elaise think that if we have intuitions of extramental objects, then the singularity and immediately can only be accounted for if we assume that there is a causal connection between the extramental thing and the intuition. So both would assume what I have um, put here as premise one on the handout. An intuition I represent, presents a certain extramental object O and not any other to an epistemic subject S because it is this very object O that affects S in such a way that I arises in it. So a certain intuition represents one particular object because that's the object which is causally um, responsible for, for that intuition. Um, now, the next step in the argument is a claim about what's going on in pure intuition. You remember Kant's argument is based on the claim that we have a pure intuition of, of space and time. And Elaise and Wilaschek have different accounts of what pure intuition is. Elaise thinks that pure intuition doesn't involve any causal affection. Otherwise, it wouldn't be pure. Wilaschek thinks pure intuition does involve causal affection, but the causal affecting, causally affecting thing isn't an extramental object, but somehow the mind itself. So there are two causal factors for pure intuition. One is the forms of intuition themselves, and then the other one is what Kant calls the um, spontaneous imagination, the transcendental imagination, which is a, an, uh, a mental faculty postulated by Kant in order to explain that we somehow are able to grasp a spatial temporal manifold as a whole. Kant thinks that we, in order to do so, it's not enough that we are presented uh, with that manifold, but we also have, have to perform an action which he calls synthesis, and um, that is done by the spontaneous understanding. That's a, a weird and complicated story, but um, it uh, at least um, entails that in pure intuition, what is affecting us is not an extramental thing. So if we have a pure intuition of space, for example, while doing geometry, then we are not affected by some extramental thing, but our own understanding somehow produces a spatial temporal manifold um, itself. Now, from either of these two second premises, together with premise one, you can infer that the objects of pure intuitions are not extramental things. That follows in both accounts. And now you only need the fourth assumption, namely that space and time are the objects of pure intuition in order to arrive the at the conclusion that space and times are not extramental things, and hence not things in themselves. <coughs> so I think that's, as I said, I think that's an ingenious um, defense, which explains a lot. Ex it explains somehow why Kant so negligent negligently went from the step that um, space and times, uh, we have a priori intuition of space and time that they couldn't be things in themselves. So there is somehow not an intermediary step in between. He doesn't explain a lot. So he seems to f 
it to follow naturally from that assumption. And I think Elaise and Villashek's account can explain very nicely why he might do so. However, I think the objection really doesn't address the neglected alternative objection in its full force. And in order to show that, I mean, you have to uh, uh, be clear that the um, defense only shows that if there was a mind-independent space and time, we wouldn't intuit it. So if there was some spatial, spatial temporal structure in the mind-independent world, that wouldn't be the space and the time that we intuit in pure intuition. Um, but the one who makes the neglected alternative objection could say, well, I, I agree on that. That's, that's no problem for me. My claim wasn't about whether we can intuit the mind-independent space and time or spatial temporal structure. My claim was that there could be such a mind-independent spatial temporal structure. And that's what you, Kant, are denying. So I grant you that if there was this spatial temporal structure, then it wouldn't be the one we, which we intuit in pure intuition, but there couldn't just still be some mind-independent space and time. And um, since there's still um, an, a neglected alternative, if Kant claims that, space, uh, that things in themselves aren't in space and time. I mean, in order to see why that's Somebody could say that, imagine an uh, indirect realist who thinks that the immediate objects of our intuitional perceptions are not extramental things, but our own ideas or inner mental intentional objects. Such a philosopher would agree that what we perceive or intuit is never the <laughs> extramental thing. Yeah, so if you have that view on, on perception, you could say, well, sure, the, the space and the time which we intuit is distinct from the space and the time which is out there in the world, but that doesn't show that out there in the world there isn't space and time. Now, Elise and Wilaschik are both aware of this objection and both address it, but I'm not really convinced that what they say about it is conclusive. So I read out a longer passage from Elise's book. It is important to notice that the claim that things in themselves are not spatial-temporal is not exactly what Kant asserts in the aesthetic although he does provide argument for it in the antinomies. Rather, he says that space and time represent no properties of things and themselves or relations between things and themselves. He says that we have representations of space and time that do not represent us with mind-independent features of reality. That is not a positive claim about the nature of things as they are in themselves, that they are not spatial-temporal, but instead a claim about what is presented to us. It is compatible with this that there should be some structure in things as they are in themselves. The point is that this structure is not what it is, what not is, structure is not what it is that it's present to us when we represent space and time. Here again, the idea that intuitions immediately present their objects makes sense of Kant's conclusion. It enables us to say that even if there were something like space and time in mind independent reality, this something would not be that of which our representation of space is a representation, since it would not be that which is present to us in a priori intuition. Now, I think that there are two readings of this passage. According to one reading, Elaise claims that Kant's argument in the aesthetic is not really meant to exclude the neglected alternative star which I've just presented. Um, but rather only the assumption that the space and the time we intuit are things in themselves. 
So he just wants to say that those things which we intuit in pure intuition, these are not things in themselves. There might be other things in themselves. Or things could be in space and time in itself, but that's not the space and the time which we intuit. And this further alternative is then only excluded later on in the critique um, by indirect arguments from the antinomies, which is a view which many people have about the Trendenbuchger. However, there's another reading which is a stronger reading, um, which results from these remarks that there could be some structure in, in the world, but it wouldn't be what we are presented with when we are presented with space and time. And you could read this as saying, well, there could be no structure um, in things in themselves, which is a spatial-temporal structure. Um, so the only structure which there could be in, in things in themselves could be something like a spatial-temporal structure or something analogous to a spatial-temporal structure. Now that would be, if, if Kant was able to prove that, then he would have ruled out the neglected alternative in its full source. But now you wonder why should there be? So why shouldn't there be a spatial-temporal structure in the world? And it's clear that somehow the argumentational resources for that claim cannot come from Kant's account of intuition alone, alone because Kant's account of intuition just <coughs> tells you what you're able to present in intuition to you, but you could by somehow by conceptual resources present that spatial uh, temporal structure of the mind-independent world. So you need an argument somehow why even our conceptual or linguistic resources aren't able to catch something like a structure in the world with, which is a spatial-temporal structure. But if you say something like this, you need an argument, and I th think that Elias is not really giving one. There is, however, something like an argument in Markus Wilaschek's response to that kind of objection. And that argument is based on a similarity or an analogy between what Kant says about intuitions and what semantic externalists say about the meaning of proper names, for example, fictional names. So Willerschek says, if you're an externalist about the semantics of proper names, then if you have a fictional name which is introduced in some story, then even if there was something in reality that had all the properties and features as uh, which the person in the story is uh, depicted as having that name in the story would still not refer or denote that extra story thing person. So if there was someone who uh, met all the uh, uh, descriptions of Hamlet, still the, the, the name in the story wouldn't refer to that person. So that's semantic externalism with respect to names. And you might think that, or, or Willerschek claims that something very similar is uh, going on in the case of Kant's account of intuition. So he writes, and I spare you the German, but try to <laughs> somehow instantaneously translate it. Even if independently of our, there was something independently of our mind to which all the properties or the features of space pertained, like three-dimensionality, homogeneity, infinity, this would not be the space as, soon, um, as far as we understand by it 
the object of our representation of space. In order for an object to be space, this object has to be the cause of our representation of space, at least according to the externalist um, account of intuition. Hence, if this intuition is a priori, its cause cannot be an um, object independent from us, and hence not represent that object which is independent from us. Now, again, I think um, there are two possible readings of, was, of what Willerschek is, is claiming here. One is the weak reading in which um, Willerschek just wants to say, well, whatever there is in the reality, it wouldn't be this space which we intuit. So if we, if we mean by space, the space we intuit, then this thing wouldn't be space. But that would still leave open the possibility there is simply, <laughs> there's space simpliciter, not space that we intuit, but space. So there could be the space we intuit and then some other space. But according to a second reading of Villaschek's um, remark, somehow it's an illusion that there could be this other um, possibility. Um, if we are semantic externalists about the term space and time, then they necessarily refer to whatever we perceive or intuit as space and time. So they necessarily perf um, perceive, uh, uh, refer to the space and the time which are objects of our intuition. And hence we could just say things in themselves aren't in space and time simpliciter without having to add the space and time which we intuit because space and time would somehow singularly referring um, to the space and the time we intuit. Um, now you might think that's a bit anachronistic because Kant wasn't Kripke, but at least you could say, well, if we look in Kant's account of singular reference, then such a story isn't so outrageous. So Kant thought that all our concepts are general concepts. So if we want to have genuine singular reference, that can only happen through intuition. And you might think if there are really general, um, genuine singular terms, then these terms cannot be somehow introduced by conceptual means, but only by means of an intuition. And now if you have this account of intuition, which makes intuition dependent on the causal sources, on their causal sources, then you might think, well, maybe Kant would agree that the term space could only um, denote the thing which we intuit as space, and that's the space and the time as objects of our pure intuition. Okay, however, I don't think that this answers the um, neglected alternative objection in its full source. Force. In order to see so, we have to see that the alternative which Kant describes is not one, but actually two. Depending on the two accounts of mind-independent space, which Kant wants to criticize. One is the Newtonian account of space and time, which thinks that space and times are substances or containers, which exist independently of the mind. The other one is a relational account of space and time, according to which there aren't really space and time as objects, but they are things which stand in uh, spatial temporal relations. And then we can also somehow form by abstracting the idea of the totality of possible 
spatial-temporal relations. And I think the argument, as far as it's defended by Wilaschek's account, could show that um, the Newtonian uh, theory of, of space and time is incorrect, or is not compatible with Kant's view that space and time are object of, of um, intuition, of a priori intuition, because you might think, well, if there was some structure out there to call it space and time, we would have to refer to it by our term space and time. There, there could be some structure, but calling it space and calling it time is only okay if these terms apply to them. And now if you have this external story about, space, about the meaning of the term space and time, then those terms couldn't refer to anything different than the objects of our intuition. But that would still not rule out the account of mind-independent space and time, which I call the relational account. You could say there could still be spatial-temporal relations among things in themselves, and they could still in themselves have spatial properties. Um, and even if this space and the time would be somehow only, could only be the, the objects of our pure intuition. Now, Kant argues against the relational theory um, of space and time. And he thinks that this theory cannot explain um, how we can ever have an, uh, a representation of space and time because he thinks that they have to be a priori. Um, but you could grant that and say, well, of maybe that the relational theory of mind-independent states couldn't be the whole story. So we need spatial-temporal relations in the mind-independent world, and then we also need space and time as forms of intuition, and that could somehow guarantee us how we can first have an a priori intuition of space and time, and by that presupposing that perceiving empirically spatial-temporal um, relations in the world. Why isn't that a plausible story? And I think that as far as the defenders um, of Kant um, have presented their case, they haven't said anything in order to rule out this, um, uh, this further neglected alternative. Um, now, one way to rule it out would be somehow to extend the semantic externalism, which I have argued is not completely implausible with respect to singular terms like space and time, to all terms whatsoever. So you could say, well, why not assume that not only the term space and the terms uh, uh, time are tied to the causal sources, but also all the predicates we use in order to describe a spatial temporal world. So the predicate extended or cubical or moving. Why couldn't we assume that also those terms somehow are um, uh, tied to their sources and then argue that somehow for some reason they have to be, can only, uh, uh, can only represent properties of, of uh, a mind-dependent space and time. But I think that would be very implausible. Any general semantic externalism is based on a rather realistic background. I mean, a Kripkean story about the meaning of general terms thinks that there are properties in the world which are causally responsible for our um, use of terms, and those terms therefore represent those properties in the world. But if you apply that general story to, Kantian, to, to Kant, he would end up claiming that all the terms we are using somehow represent the properties by which they are caused. And now we know that Kant's picture is that 
somehow there is some, or according at least to my uh, understanding, that there is some mind-independent world of things in themselves, and they cause the representation we have of them. And if we assume that our representation represent those properties which are causally responsible for them, then we would end up um, assuming that our representation represent properties of things in themselves. And that would be a bizarre view. Um, not a bizarre view in itself, but a <laughs> bizarre, bizarre reading of Kant. So I don't think that any general semantic externalism is plausible, so we need some other story. And as I have promised you, I think that Kant is able to offer such a story. Now, I want to base my interpretation on a passage which Kant added to the second edition, not in order to answer the neglected alternative objection, but to answer another pressing objection against his theory, which was made by some of his early critics. The objection is that Kant is committed to some extreme Barclian and self-reputing idealism. Um, it came out, the objection, in the very first review of, of the critique of pure reason by Feder and Gave, which you might know, but also in um, a review by Pistorius, which is a very good reviewer of Kant. If you have not read him yet and are interested in Kant, you should absolutely read Pistorius' reviews of, of Kantian uh, uh, texts and texts by other Kantians. And Pistorius presents an argument and says, well, according to one reading of Kant's view, it's really idealistic in an extreme sense, and it's bizarre and self-refuting because it also assumes that we only um, cognize ourselves as appearances. So the self is also an appearance. And that would turn, as Pistorius calls it, everything into illusion because we have appearances of bodies, but then the thing to which they appear is also an appearance, and that somehow undermines the whole conception of um, appearing. Um, now, in order to address this objection, Kant, as I said, puts um, a passage into uh, the general remarks about the transcendental aesthetic of the second edition. And I want to read this out, um, although it's a bit long, because it's somehow it's my favorite Kant passage. Okay. If I say, in space and time, intuition of outer objects as well as self-intuition of the mind represent both of these things as each affects our senses, that is, as it appears, that is not to say that these objects were mere illusions. For in the appearance, the objects, indeed even properties that we attribute them, are always regarded as something really given. Only that, in so far as this property depends only on the kind of intuition of the subject in the relation, of the given object to it, this object as appearance is to be distinguished from itself as object in itself. Thus, I do not say that bodies merely seem to exist out of me or that my soul only seem, seems to be given if I assert that the quality of space and time, in accordance with which, as conditions of their existence, I posit both of these, lies in my kind of intuition and not in these objects in themselves. The predicates of appearance can be attributed to the object itself in relation to our sense. For example, the red color of fragrance to the rose. But the illusion can never be attributed to the object as predicate. Precisely that would be to attribute to the object for itself what pertains to it only in relation to the senses, 
or in general to the subject. What is not to be encountered in the object in itself at all, but is always to be encountered in its relation to the subject and is inseparable from the representation of the object is appearance, and thus the predicates of space and of time are rightly attributed to the objects of the senses as such, and there is no illusion in this. However, if I attribute the redness to the rose in itself, or extension to all outer objects in themselves, without noticing a certain relation of these objects to the subject and limiting my, sub my judgment to this, only then illusion arises. Now, one thing to say about this passage is that it's one of the clearest um, expressions of what in the literature is called the one object view of the distinction between appearances and things in themselves. As you know, probably know, there is um, a controversy between Kant scholars between two object and one object people. Some uh, people think Kant thought that appearances and things in themselves are two kinds of objects. Other people think, no, they are the same object regarded in two different um, ways. And I think, although both, um, both theories can, of course, present uh, some textual evidence. At least this one is a very definite and um, uh, uncontroversial uh, pronunciation of the one object view. He says that it's not that somehow there are appearances on the one hand and then there are things in themselves on the other, but it is the object as appearance which is to be distinguished from itself as a thing in itself. So one object somehow has two sides or two ways we can regard it. And it also makes clear that by appearances, Kant doesn't mean some purely inner mental, in purely intentional objects, but he means objects that are given to us, that are independent of us, that they are somehow out there, and that we only describe them as appearances because we say certain things about somehow what we know about these properties or what they are what their properties are. And that the fact that somehow appearances also are extramental somehow addresses the um, idealism objection and the self-refutation objection. Because as Kant says, when I say that also the soul is only an appearance, I, I do not want to uh, deny that there is some soul independently of how it appears. So there is a soul. <laughs> the only thing is that it's somehow only spatial, or in, in the case of the uh, soul, that it is only um, temporal or temporal as far as it is, appears. Now Kant also says in this passage something about um, how this distinction between objects as they appear and objects as they are in themselves should be spelled out. And I think what he says there um, uh, amounts to kind of uh, two property, or a, a dualism bet between two kinds of properties. So there are some properties that objects have in relation to us or to our senses. They are attributed to the object in relation to our sense or to the subject in general, as I says. And then there are other objects which the object has, other properties which the object has independently of any relations to subjects or minds. So in general, that the property P of an object O is dependent on the cognitive constitution C of certain subjects means that O would not have P if C could be different in any way. So one kind of property seems to be such that objects only have, have them because we are the way we are. So they have properties, those objects have properties, but they only have them because we have certain properties, namely we have space and time as forms of intuition. 
He seems to say, well, we can attribute spatial temporal properties to things, to extra mental things, but then those properties we attribute to those extra mental things are only properties that these objects only have because we have space and time as forms of intuition, and they would lose these properties if we lost our, or if, if our mind was structured differently. Now, I think a very natural way of somehow reconstructing what Kant is saying here is to um, interpret these appearance properties as what in the contemporary literature would be called response-dependent properties. Response-dependent properties are somehow something like anthropocentric dispositions. They are properties that objects have because we react to these objects in a certain way. And properties that these objects would lose if we reacted differently to them. And you can, it's also rather natural, I think, to interpret these response-dependent properties as a certain kind of higher order properties. And I want to just make clear what that would mean in a, in a non-Kantian easy example. So if you take the property of being poisonous, you might think, well, that's a very good example for response-dependent properties. Things are poisonous for human beings because human beings react, react to them in a certain way, because they show certain symptoms of intoxication if they eat them, for example. So the property of being poisonous is the property of being such that it has certain effects on us human beings. And that being such that it has certain effects on us can be spelled out um, by means of a definition like the following, being poisonous for human is nothing but the response-dependent property of having some response-independent property that causes symptoms of intoxication in humans. So if we say of fly agrarics, for example, that they are poisonous for us, then we say, well, they have some property that causes intoxication in us. We don't have to know that property. It's a chemical property. They, and, uh, uh, they, they contain some chemical element, which, which is the uh, uh, which is the cause of our intoxication, and being poisonous is not that chemical property. It's the higher order property of having some such first order property which is certain causal role. And now that chemical property isn't mind dependent or response dependent, it's just a chemical property. It would be there even if we didn't react with intoxication to that thing. But the higher property of having some property which is such that it causes intoxication in us, that is response dependent. So if we reacted differently, the object would lose that property. And I think that Kant's own example seems to involve that he thought of being red in a, very, in a similar way. So he uses red as an example which makes sure that somehow we can call things red. It's not our mind that is red, it's, it's things that are red. But he seemed to have thought that it's clear that Things are only red because we react to them in a certain way. So they are not red in themselves. They are red for us because we react to them with certain sensations. And if you apply the, a similar kind of analysis to that case, you say that um, being red, according to that uh, Kantian analysis, is the response-dependent property of having some response-independent response property that causes reddish sensation in humans. I say reddish sensations because you should characterize the effect um, by which you define the response-dependent property of the object not as being red, because red is the uh, property of the object, and by, in order to 
to um, uh, not to to get into secu secularity worries, um, you should have an somehow uh, way of speak about the mental effects, which is independent of of the um, uh, property of the object. And people in the um, discussion about dispositional theories of colors introduce this term of reddish sensations. Now, these are two models by which we could somehow understand what Kant means when he says that spatial temporal properties pertain to objects only in relation to, to us and are dependent on our, our mind. But now, of course, a good re reconstruction of that theory would involve that we specify the mental effects um, by which we can define those um, this, uh, those properties of extra mental, those response dependent properties of extra mental objects. I won't do that here because it's a very long story and um, it would somehow go beyond uh, the scope of this paper. The general idea is that Kant has a lot to say about this issue because he thinks that our mental states do not represent by themselves objective states of affair or objects, but he thinks that we need the categories uh, in order to do so. So he th thought that any purely passive story about how the mind represents the world couldn't be successful, um, but we need somehow um, a certain kind of content which is added to our experience by our own understanding in order to interpret or make our mental states be a uh, representation of objective uh, states of, of affairs. That sounds dark, but it's the Kantian view <laughs> in the transcendental analytic. And if you look at that um, more closely, you see that Kant, for any kind of such categories or pure concepts of the understanding, he uh, defines a certain kind of mental state which is not yet objective and then says if we add a certain category to that or apply a certain category uh, to that, only then can that state become, be, uh, be given some objectual content. So with respect to the category of reality, he says, we have to add this category to sensations in order to interpret these sensations as representing or having to do with a representation of realities, of real qualities and things. And that would be the example of color or heat or other qualities. And then with respect to the uh, category of quantity, the effect would be um, a spatial temporal ordering of sensations. So the story is that somehow things affect us, then the mind structures gives these sensations which arise in us a certain spatial temporal order, but that itself is not yet a representation of space and time as objects or of spatial temporal properties as objective, but the understanding has to uh, add to that at the categories of quantity in order to make these representations representations of objective states of affairs. And then another story is to be told about the uh, categories of uh, relation. <clears throat> now, all that can be in brackets. It's just to say, well, it's not, I think that Kant really has a, a big story to tell about this step from the non-objective uh, mental states to the objective mental states. It's, and I just say that there is this story um, in order to say you would have, uh, you would be able to give you some story how we could define those, those response-dependent properties by means um, of these higher order, t higher order properties of objects, 
to be such that they have a certain effect on us and then characterizing this effect in non-representational terms. So let's just look an ex an, uh, at an example. Being cubical could be then defined as the response-dependent property of having some response-independent property that causes humans to perform a cubicalish synopsis. So cubicalish is meant to be a word for the kind of structuring our mind does that finally re results in a representation of something as being cubical. Um, we can talk about whether that's, I mean, cubicalish is really a, a stupid term, and, um, but I um, think it, somehow it's, it's not a serious objection that this term is so stupid, but we can talk about this in the discussion. Okay, but some such story seems to be in Kant's mind. Let's, let's agree on that. Now, what I want to um, tell you in the last five minutes is that once you have accepted that stories, story about spatial temporal properties, the neglected alternative is not a real alternative. Now, the neglected alternative put the scenario which is supposedly not yet excluded by Kant in the following terms. There could be, Kant has shown that spatial temporal properties are properties of appearances. Could they not also be properties of things in themselves? So that assumes that there are two kinds of objects. There are these appearances. They have certain properties. But now it could also be the case that there are other objects, namely the mind-independent things in themselves, which also have these properties. That was the worry. But once we have seen what the distinction between appearances and things in themselves amounts to, that's not a correct way of describing it because, as we have seen, the distinction between appearances and things in themselves is not one between two kinds of objects. It's one between the objects as they appear and the objects as they are in themselves. So the worry should rather be formulated like that. Spatial temporal properties do not only pertain to objects as they appear, that is, they are not only response dependent, but it could be that they are also rather also pertain to objects as they are in themselves. That, that is, that they are also response independent. And once you have formulated the alternative in this way, you see that it's not really an alternative. It's not really an option, because that would mean that one and the same property is at the same time response dependent and response independent. So the, the objection would be, well, you have shown us that a certain property is response-dependent, it's mind-dependent, but couldn't it also be mind-independent, response-independent? The objection would be like, okay, we agree that being poisonous is response-dependent, but couldn't things also be poisonous independently from any reaction? And, I mean, in the case of being poisonous, it's clear what the reaction should be like. It, could, uh, it should be no there isn't such a thing as being poisonous for itself. I mean, once you have understand what being poisonous is, what the essence of being poisonous is, you see that there isn't any such thing as being poisonous for itself. Being poisonous is a response-dependent property, and no response-dependent property could also be a response-independent property. Similar for red. If you once you have uh, agreed that red is nothing but the higher-order property of having causing red sensations in us, then this property is, per essence, a response-dependent property, and there's no such thing as being red in itself. I mean, you, of course, that could be the wrong view about redness, but once you have agreed that it's the correct view about redness, you have somehow also excluded the alternative things that things in themselves could be red. 
And again, obviously, now, <laughs> if we have reconstructed, or if my uh, reconstruction of what Kant says about spatial temporal properties um, is correct, then by showing that spatial temporal properties are response dependent, pertain to objects only in relation to our sense, we would, would by that ex have excluded the possibility that they also are mind independent. Because again, if they are nothing but the property of being such as to arise or as to cause a certain mental effect in us, then this very property couldn't be something which pertains to objects in itself. Now, obviously, in the case of spatial temporal properties, it's a much less controversial, uh, a, a, a much higher controversial issue whether they are response dependent. I mean, in the case of being poisonous, nobody denies that it's re response dependent. With red, maybe people might, uh, might uh, uh, diverge, but obviously with space, Kant might be the only one who thinks that it's a response dependent properties. So again, we, um, that's okay. My point is only that once you have agreed that it is correct what he says about space and time. So his conclusion in the transcendental aesthetic is correct, then by that you have excluded the other um, alternatives that they could only, uh, also be response independent. And I think we, in order to s somehow see what kind of, uh, uh, the, when we want to, to have an analogous case from the empirical realm, it would be better somehow to look at examples where people have for a certain time thought that a certain property is independent of a certain parameter, and then have, to have discovered that uh, the property is in fact dependent on a certain parameter. And um, uh, just to give you an ex uh, three, three examples, maybe people have thought that happening at noon is a property that events just have. And then they figured out, no, happening at noon is something you have relative to a certain time zone. Once you have seen that, you know that there couldn't be such a thing as happening at noon in itself, independent from any time zone. So there isn't be uh, 12 o'clock on the sun, as Wittgenstein says. Or another case would be moving upwards. People might have thought, um, I think in the Epicurean physics, it's thought that people, uh, objects are constantly falling downwards, probably in some absolute sense. But once you've discovered or seen, by means of physical arguments, that or arguments from physics that people move upwards or downwards only in relation to a certain gravitational field. Once you have seen that, once you have discovered that, then there isn't uh, longer any alternative left open that people uh, that things could also move upwards in themselves. So these are um, examples of cases where the parameter is not a reaction of a subject, but some other thing. But somehow they are um, they show us that. It can be a, discoverer, a discovery, maybe one done by physics, that certain properties are dependent on certain parameters. And I think what Kant wanted to show is that the same is true with spatial temporal properties. And if he succeeded in showing that, then there is no gap open to be closed. Thank you very much. <laughs>